What if you were born with a disease that you always knew would kill you? And then what if all of a sudden you were given a second chance? Well, that's exactly what happened to me. And it's the question that we explore on the new podcast series, Breathless from Snack Labs. Join me, Jeremy Saunders, for a series that explores what it means to live and die, to love and to lose, and what it's like to have your whole life turned upside down and the unexpected challenges that come with a life-saving drug. You can listen to Breathless now, wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Turn Me On Podcast. My name is Bridie, and I'm here to introduce you to this week's guest, Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. So, Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee is a clinical psychologist, a sex and intimacy coach, an author, a speaker, and a podcast host based in London, England. Dr. Bisbee specializes in GSRD, which stands for Gender, Sexuality, Relationship Diversity, and is a consensual non-monogamy and kink BDSM knowledgeable uh intimacy coach also helps traumatized people move from victim to survivor and back into life jeremy and i really loved having this conversation uh with dr Lori beth back i believe it was in september and we know you're gonna love this conversation too thanks again for tuning in this week and we love you and we'll see you on the other side Well, we are sitting down with Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee, uh, a clinical psychologist, sex and intimacy coach, author, speaker, podcast host. Uh, I mean, workshop facilitator. F- fucking does it all. Uh, and uh, how does she find the time? <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, uh, really? <laughs> that's a good question. How do you find the time? Um, it's not easy. <laughs> Uh, we're, we're so glad to have you sitting with us today. Um, as... Do you use all of those when you introduce yourself generally? Or like how, if we were to ask you to introduce yourself, how would you go about that? I mean, it depends. These days I tend to talk, I, I tend to say clinical psychologist, accredited advanced gender, sex, and relationship diversity therapist. Um, gender, sex, and relationship diversity means LGBTQ, non-monogamy, and kink and BDSM. And then I I often leave off the coach because I think that the kind of talking about the specialties, but it depends on my mood. Yeah, yeah, right. It's interesting because it makes sense that those three topics would be together. And it's interesting, you know, we've done this podcast now for almost six years and those subjects are recurring and recurring mm-hmm. and recurring. They're mm-hmm. just, they, uh, there's just no end to the, the folks who want to know about those topics yeah. who are interested in speaking about them. And anyway, but, but this, I feel like this might be the first time though that I've, that I've read like specifically someone specializing in GSRD. Yeah. It's um, got an acronym. Yeah. And, and uh, again, GSRD, gender, sexuality, relationship, diversity. 
um, which is, I'm sure we've spoken to a lot of people that probably actually specialize in GSRD, but I've never actually seen it put together in that acronym. Um, and it wasn't until you just said that, that I was like, oh, that's what GSRD is. That was my first question was, what is, how do you specialize in GSRD? So, so for me, I went the route of, I'm a clinical psychologist and the areas I was most interested in when I was studying in the dark ages, because I've been working with people for 35 years. So um, what I was most interested in was trauma on the one hand and then sex and relationships. Um, my interest in sex and relationships was in the things that were less usual because that was where I lived. So I wanted to work with people like me. Um, and so that would be gender, sex and relationship diversity, that area, but that didn't exist as an area that you could study. And in fact, when you studied sex and relationships in my day, you were lucky if you even heard about homosexuality, right? Mm, Everything mm -hmm. was pretty much heteronormative. Um, and so I started working with people and I did pick up education along the way, wherever I could get continuing education. Mm. Um, I came over here, um, in 1990 and was practicing over here. And some years into practicing, um, pink therapy began. Uh, pink therapy is an organization that was started by Dominic Davis um, to look at um, initially LGBTQ folk and, um, and also added non-monogamy and kink and BDSM. Mm. So they would train therapists who were already trained in some something else. You already had your basic training. You could come along and learn about various different things from them, and you still can. And over the years, they developed um, um, uh, an advanced qualification, and, and you could get accredited, which is what I did in the end, just because I want to promote the idea that this is a specialty, that it's different from just working um, as a sex therapist, right, because right. the training for sex therapy is very different than the training when you're working with the alternative groups. Right. Okay. How so? That's really, I find that really curious. Well, there still isn't a lot of training around alternatives. Mm -hmm. So even in this day and age and sex therapy, lots of sex therapy is focused around things like libido and um, and the physio physiological problems that people have, um, and you know, erectile dysfunction and uh, vaginismus, and really mm. important areas. Do not get me wrong, but totally. we're still not doing a lot of formal training. You still don't get how to work with um, people who present with kink and BDSM. Yeah. I mean, I teach stuff like that to therapists, and we've, mm. there's a, a two book series coming out erotically and relationally queer. Um, and mm. I'm in the erotically queer book. I did the chapter on kink and BDSM and they're written for therapists mm. about yeah. working with these populations because there still isn't enough exposure at this point. Right. Right. And like, and that makes sense to me, you know, it's a, you're talking about things that can be aspects of someone's um, someone's intimate and sexual life that is very important to them. Uh, yet when needing to seek counsel from a therapist when it pertains to their relationships, if you find a therapist that's like <laughs> BDSM, like I'm not into that freaky shit, um, then all of a sudden, you you know, the the the, the stigma is there. You, you feel isolated. You feel like, oh, well, if you if you feel this way, then there's no fucking hope because there's not going to be anybody out there who's going to be able to speak to me about you know, um, about my lifestyle or the things that I'm struggling with or what have you. So that that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, the, the thing that I'm, I'm really kind of curious to talk to you about, uh, off, right off the bat is, is, um, is trauma and, and like your work as a, as a, um, as a psychologist, when it pertains to trauma, trauma is like, I, we literally, um, my other podcast, we literally just had a conversation with, uh, Gabor Mate, Dr. Gabor Mate from, uh, from Canada. He's like one of the foremost, you know, leaders in, in dealing with trauma, and, um, and so that's, you know, trauma is just like right on the, the tip of my, my brain right now. Um, uh, I, I guess, you know, it, one of the things I caught you say there was like early on in your career, um, trauma was one of the things that you were sort of drawn to. Um, I, I'd love to kind of talk about how, how couples can deal with trauma when, when trauma is like 
seems to be at the root cause of the, um, the issues that might be coming up between, you know, two people who are in an intimate relationship. That's a um, great thing to talk about mm. um, because we don't spend a lot of time talking about it. So I, I do specialist trauma work and have done. That was what my PhD was a treatment outcome study examining a couple of different methods of trauma um, work. And I am in the camp and there are definitely still two camps. I'm in the camp that says that, yes, you can actually recover from trauma mm -hmm. and you don't have to spend your life man managing triggers. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are still many trauma specialists who believe that you're teaching people management. Mm -hmm. So I believe that people need skills, but that you can actually resolve trauma and you can actually resolve catastrophic trauma. Mm. I believe that as a therapist who's successfully done that with clients over many, many years, but also as a person who went through the process myself successfully at the very beginning of my career. Yeah. So I've got both experiences and oftentimes couples will come in and um, particularly with sexual trauma, will be dancing around at least one partner's sexual trauma mm. that will aff affect every aspect of their relationship, constantly being triggered mm -hmm. by past experience with um, very little available to help them approach it as a couple yeah or as an individual or, you know? or as yeah. an individual well and so i see a lot of people where um they've been told that they're going to have to manage these triggers mm. and my first response is well that's not necessarily so mm. if you're willing to do the work we can get rid of the triggers mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know it, it's it's hard work it's not long-term work. We're not talking about years of work, mm -hmm. um, but it is hard work. And when, it, particularly when trauma is complex and particularly when it's early in life, yeah, it's a, when, it's a chunk of work. When you say early in life, are we all kind of in agreement that the, like, it's like that first like three or four years, is that still the sort of standard for developmental psychology? Like those are the years that you deeply imprint things that... Or is that sort of pseudo? No, that's still true. But but a lot of sexual abuse doesn't start until kids are over the age of six. Right. Mm. Um, and it's just as damaging over the age of six, right? Yeah, um, yeah. The first three years is when you get the foundation of knowing that you're worthy. Mm. And so when people have really early childhood trauma where they, you know, they, they were never they were either badly neglected or abused at that age. They never knew that they were special just because they're there. That unconditional love was never received. Then you usually are ending up dealing with far more than, than trauma. You, you don't end up with a decent personality structure. Yeah. So you've got all sorts of issues. So for those sorts of situations, you could be talking about a lot of long-term therapy, but that's not the trauma triggers. Okay. That's that basic sense of, of, worthiness mm -hmm. and value um as a human okay if you got decent parenting up to age three and then you started having problems you'll end up with one set of issues you'll mm. end up with better issues if you got decent parenting to age five or six then no matter what kind of trauma you've had that can be dealt with very effectively okay. because you have a sense of yourself as um, deserving of love, regardless, even if you can't find it because it's buried under all the shit that mm. has happened, mm -hmm. it's still there somewhere. Whereas if, if you've never had that sense and you've never known how to trust yourself in any way, rebuilding is starting at the very beginning. Mm. Um. So that, I think one of the things that we run into is that whereas we used to divide things in very fine categories, the tendency over the last 10 or 15 years has been to start lumping lots of diagnoses together. I use with neurodiversity, you used to have Asperger's in, and I understand why they decided to stop using that, mm -hmm. but you had gradations of things and then you had autism on this end. And now mm. we just have autistic spectrum disorder, which could be somebody who actually can't even manage to dress themselves Mm -hmm. And it can be somebody who can go and get a PhD and actually successfully, mm -hmm. you know, manage to work in the world and has 
some odd misses and some different ways of thinking, but generally mm. functions well. Mm. And so when you say the diagnosis, you've got all of that. And the same thing has happened with trauma where people will talk about things in such a way that now it's really hard to know whether you're talking about somebody who's had issues since, you know, close to birth, mm. or you're talking about somebody where the trauma came a bit later mm. when they've already had some of that basic foundational stuff. Yeah. That's really interesting. The, one of the, one of the parts, <clears throat> one of the things about talking about trauma and the, and this is just like kind of coming up for me recently um, is that I think for a lot of people, and, may, and maybe like, let's speak to some of the listeners of the, of the podcast, you know, someone out there listening right now who feels like, you know, you're hearing this conversation about trauma and you're thinking perhaps like, oh, well, I had a good, I had a good childhood and I was, I was never like, I was never sexually abused as a child. Like I, you know, and, and I've, I don't like, I can't think of, I, I don't look at myself as someone who's experienced any sort of trauma in life. Um, but, but the thing that I, that I'm, that I've, you know, especially in the, the conversations that I've been having recently is, is coming to realize that like, yes, that might be true. And that's, that's wonderful. However, I don't think there's a single human out there who is, who is living, who has not experienced some sort of trauma, regardless of how big that trauma is. And, and no matter how, no matter how little that trauma is, it is for certain that that trauma that you experienced, whatever it is, is having an effect on the way that you show up in your day-to-day life. So, you know, if we're talking about relationship, you know, um, you know, someone who's been through a couple of, uh, abusive relationships dealt with things like gaslighting or, or what have you, when you are going into a new relationship, those things are having an effect on the way that you show up in that relationship, even though you were never sexually abused, even though you sure. were, you know, you were hugged and you were held as a child. Um, and I think, I think there's a lot of people out there that don't like really, don't really recognize or don't really want to do the work to, to kind of recognize that there is ultimately trauma that exists in your past and, and it does show up in your life. Um, which is why I think a lot of people have like hard times with the relationships, you know, like getting into the same fight over and over and over again with your partner. Um, it, it's, you know, it could be that you, <laughs> that you and your partner aren't, aren't, uh, aren't, uh, <laughs> compatible. compatible. Um, but, but if you, if you kind of, take a step back and look at it, 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 it quite possibly has to do with the fact that you experienced some sort of trauma back, you know, back in your, some point in your life. And you haven't, it, it, it hasn't really, uh, it hasn't really stuck out to you and you, you, you're, you're not quite familiar with it. Um, so it, the, the reason I say that is because I, I don't want people to listen to these conversations surrounding trauma and go, Oh, well, that's not me. Well, you know, it's big, that's not my problem. So I talk about it as being big T and little T, right? You know, mm. big T trauma is the stuff that gives you PTSD. Yeah. Right. But, but little T trauma is the stuff that we experience every day and yes. it's defined by the person. So when I work with people on trauma, I'm not, I'm not going, oh, this doesn't count as a trauma. I think whatever mm. they bring as a trauma is a trauma, mm-hmm. right? I mean, somebody stubbed their toe really badly. That was a trauma. That's <laughs> fine. If it, if they kept, if they kept that, getting triggered by this toes tubbing, then that's what we're working on. Right. Yes, yeah. I don't, I don't judge. That's not, it's not down to me to judge. It's to recognize that when we're being triggered, it's because something hasn't been finished. Mm. It's really simple. Mm-hmm. You can't have something be triggered if it's finished. So mm-hmm. if you've gotten over it, if you've processed it, if it's, that's not a problem anymore, then it can't get triggered. Mm. If it's being triggered in the present, it's not finished. And then you have a choice. You can either spend your life dancing around it and mm-hmm. waiting for the next landmine to blow up, or you can choose to do the work so that you finish it, whatever it is. Mm. And when I've got couples come in where trauma is a thing, um, frequently they don't want to do the work, even when it's a big thing. It's all yeah. this. It's all this. Well, I don't want to talk about it because I've dealt with that and I put it in a box. Yeah. And I say to people, if you put it in a box, then it's going to rot. Well, if you put it in a box, it's not done. Yeah. If you've dealt with it, there's nothing to put in the box anymore. Yeah, right, right. It's done. Yeah. Um, it, it, if you still regret something happening, it's not finished. Mm-hmm. It's finished when it, there's no emotion attached to it anymore. Not that you don't have the memory. Of course, you have the memory, but you don't think about it all the time. 
it doesn't come up regularly and it doesn't come up most importantly with emotion attached to it because yeah. it's finished. Yeah. And that argument that you mentioned that the couple's having over and over and over again, that's usually somebody triggered. Yes. And it can't resolve because that person thinks that they're arguing over the dishes right. today. And they may be arguing over the dishes 20 years ago. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. right do, do you have any like example examples of like life skills that people can use to try and to try and recognize their own triggers when, when in fact they, they, they might not even realize what those triggers might be, but they have a sense that there's something going on. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to say this first. The reason I'm always hesitant to do this is because everybody will then go around recognizing and managing <laughs> and, not, and not do the work to sort it out. Right, right, so right. the first thing I'm going to say is <laughs> the fact of the matter is that when you want to resolve these things, it is far more easily done with somebody who is objective and outside of you to guide you. Yes. Yeah. Not because they're going to tell you what anything means, not because they're going to tell you where anything comes from, but because they hold the structure, they hold the space so that you can go where you need to go and feel how you need to feel, knowing that somebody's going to make sure that you're put back together at the end of the day. Mm. That's the value of a therapist or a coach or a spiritual advisor, anybody who's well-trained in doing these things. That's their main, the main value. The skills that you can have to identify these traumas is notice when, number one, when are you reacting stronger than you feel you should be in a situation? Mm. Anytime you go from zero to 60 in one second flat, you should be questioning what's going on. Unless somebody's come up and punched you in the face mm. or they violated your consent in some big way. If you're going from zero to 60 in one second, that's there's probably something else going on than besides what's going on in the immediate moment. Yeah. Um, and look, the other thing is to look for patterns of things that upset you. Is there a, a time of day that's always upsetting? Is there a phrase that's always upsetting? Mm. There are there sensory things, you know, start to look for those patterns. It's about being able to step back and be an observer for a while. So that there's skill in being able to do that. Mm. And also, a, a, also like a mo to, the skill to be able to, to stop your, to pause your impulse. Mm. Mm -hmm. I would say there's also a skill too in, in, in being the one who isn't triggered and isn't experiencing the trigger to like recognize when those moments come up. So like the, the other person in the relationship to go, Oh, right. This is that thing again that keeps popping up from time to time. Like I'm noticing that, you know, I'm noticing that has that to be handled really carefully. Yeah. But what I always say to people is, unfortunately, the healthier person in the relationship is the one that has to actually call the time on the argument. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it doesn't feel fair because that's usually the person who's always having to deal with the emotional shit. Yeah. But that's the person that has to say, okay, we're going to stop now because this doesn't get us anywhere. We've done this before. I see this pattern. The hard part is not saying to your partner, this is your trigger, right? Yes, because that yes. never, that never lands. <laughs> no, it just no, doesn't, yeah. right? But it's to say, okay, can we step back from this and see if we can figure out what's going on separate from this argument? Because mm. we do this every single time. This is what happens. Mm. Yeah. So that means something else is going on here. So we're going to stop and step back. And get permission from your partner to ask questions. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's my, like when I'm in that situation with my partner, what I'll get is when I'm like, I can't talk about, I need to pause this. Like my emotions are ramping up. I don't have any control over my emotions or what I'm, what's coming out of my mouth right now. I think it's, you know, better for everybody involved. If we just stop right now, I often find the response that I'll get is it's never a good time for you. Yeah. Well, and then, so then look at that, look at that and see if that's true, mm -hmm. right? If that's true, then the subject matter is obviously triggering. Mm. So then there's, there's, it may not go back to your past. If you have a long relationship with somebody, it may just go back to the beginning of the relationship. You never know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it's obviously things stacked on top of each other. If any time the subject comes up, you're already ready to fight. Then mm. you've got to go, okay, it's never a good time because this issue always triggers me. How are we going to deal with this? 
Um, but one challenge is to say, okay, um, how about I actually choose a time? Mm. Mm. Like I'm shutting it down now, but at this time in the future. Yeah, but tomorrow at 10 o'clock, we're going to try and talk about this again. And if I still get that emotional, we're going to recognize, I'm going to recognize that this is a trigger for me and figure out how we can deal with this situation. And if you're still running into it, maybe we do go get some help because I'm, because this is not resolving. It's, it's just recognizing that you're doing the same thing over and over again that isn't working. So why do you think it's going to work now? You know what I find really mysterious with regards to trauma is the concept of um, intergenerational trauma. And we hear that a lot um, with regards uh, specifically to like race and and like um, awful like history of, of race and whatnot. But I also feel like I can be very open about this because it's it, my sister's written a memoir and she's got this whole uh, – tell all essentially coming out that tells my, my mother's history, which wasn't, you know, I didn't, I grew up early on years with my mother, but, but not in, you know, as an adult, anyway, my mother experienced a lot of sexual trauma as a child. I didn't, at least to the best of my knowledge, although it was happening all around me to my siblings. Um, but I didn't know about that until my, my early teens, but especially since kind of tapping into a little bit of what you're talking to Gabor Mate about mm -hmm. and, and addiction um, also, you know, possibly being a, a, something that gets passed down, not, not as a genetic disease, but more of a, a way of coping with our trauma um, or, or, but maybe not trauma that's not even ours. And well, so yeah, but there's behavioral things that we learn, right? So for me, the thing about intergenerational trauma is about the fact, the way in which we learn how to cope with stressors and emotions that we learn by watching our parents, because that's that's the only place for us to learn is at home. And so the way it's passed down, it, not by some weird osmosis, sometimes when people talk about this and they'll talk about the whole societal trauma and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And I'm like, that's great. And there's no way for an individual to handle any of that. So you basically, by the end of the conversation, a person just feels helpless and hopeless and they're talking about managing triggers for their whole life because they are X, Y, Z, or W ethnicity, and they can't handle it, right? That's, to me, that's completely not useful. The far more useful conversation is, what did you learn in your household to deal with those sorts of stressors, mm. right? So if you come from a family um, of Holocaust survivors, how did they learn to deal with their emotions that made it possible for them to survive? How was that passed down? So what did the children see about, learn about emotion and relational inter interactions based on growing up in that household, which they then passed down to their children? Because without intervention, we do what we learned. That's a much more manageable, uh, <laughs> for sure. Like, particularly you were talking about, we talked about race, but you know, something that's also come up is like the patriarchy and like yeah. globally, the women are angry and it's, but, it's, so that's unhelpful to me. Well, yes. Mm. There's nothing I can. And, uh, and so that's for sociology to deal with and for his <laughs> and for historians to deal with mm. and to talk about societal change, which is very important. Please don't anybody think I'm not saying that that's important, but mm. for individuals, it does. Can I swear on this podcast? Yes. Oh, fuck no. It does fuck all, right? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely fuck all to be talking about the trauma I experienced from being an XYZ person in this society and being persecuted in this society. Nothing is going to fucking change because you have no control over anybody but you. And so if I'm working with you, I want you to be able to get the best for you, which means working on your individual slice of this, mm. making sure you have the skills that you didn't get from growing up within that environment, you're missing emotional skills. Most people are, <laughs> you know, yeah. and so working on the emotional and relational skills and then dealing with the stuff that isn't finished mm. so that you're armored when you go back out into the societal trauma you're going to face every day, but it's not triggering things from every year of your life. You've not cleaned out the well and you're dealing with things as they come up. So the well isn't continuing to stack. Because you now have the skills to deal with them as they come up. 
that's going to make a difference for an individual. But then if that individual is doing better, then they're likely to make more of a difference in society. Mm. So I, I, but I know that if, because I'm a psychologist, I approach from the individual up yeah, from mm-hmm. the couple or the family up. Right. And mm-hmm. instead of from the society down. Right. Right. Well, yeah, no, that's, it's completely unmanageable that that makes so much sense. Cause I was going to ask you, how do you feel about that? And I was like, what, how, what, right. <laughs> that's me crazy because yeah. I can't, the thing, the biggest, the biggest thing that most people have to learn. And I, I mean, and I include myself in this because I have to remind myself of this regularly to say to yourself, what do I actually have control over? Yeah. Yeah. What I actually have control over is me. That's it. I have control over nothing else. I can seek to, with my partner's permission, have control over certain things, right? <laughs> I can seek to, with society's permission, have control over certain things. But ultimately, the only thing I can change is me. And so if I'm relying on all of these people outside to change in order for me to feel better. Good luck. Right. I want to contribute to things changing so that people don't develop the same things societally that we did growing up. Mm. So I'd still need to keep a community mindset, but where I can really affect change is with me. Yeah. How many times in your life, like I, I, have you had to go through that process of clearing out again and again, like do do like you said, it's when it's gone and it's put away, then it's not triggering you anymore. But it also seems to me like people seem to cycle through the same lessons over and over again. And they're, they're not getting it. They're not getting it. They're missing something. So there's to me, there's. I'll use an example of we only have access to the things that are triggered sometimes. So when we talk about trauma, um, let's say you're working on your relationship with your mother. You're going to work on the things you have access to. Let's say you've never been pregnant. You've never had a child. There's a part of your relationship with your mother that you don't have access to until you get pregnant. And all of a sudden, all sorts of stuff will come up. That doesn't mean that you didn't effectively deal with with the earlier bits. It means there was a bit you didn't have access to that you have to deal with now. So it doesn't all come back. It'll be a different bit. When people go through the same lesson over and over again, they're missing something. It might be an emotional theme that they're not paying attention to. I talk about trying to figure out your relational pattern. Um, And the story I tell is that, you know, 20 years ago, if I walked into a room and there were 100 people in the room, all attractive people, and only one of them was an alcoholic or an addict, that's the person I was attracted to, right? Mm. Nobody else smelled right to me. And and that was because there was something about that person that made sense to me. I knew I didn't like any of the shitty behavior that came along with that, but there was something. And so I had a number of relationships with active addicts and alcoholics until I finally realized what it was that thing that I was going for which was an edge that I Mm. really liked and I finally realized I could get that edge in somebody who wasn't an active addict or alcoholic and found out where I could get that edge so I went from active to recovered or recovering (laughs) so right so I've got you know my my (laughs) husband is um like 32 years sober, 33 years sober, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was sober long before I met him, but he's still edgy. Mm. Right. And I still have the edge that I like just without the shit. Yeah. But it took me, you know, it took me working on a bunch of different things. And somebody would have said, well, don't you feel like you've worked on this before? Well, each time I would end up looking at different stuff. I couldn't figure out what it was, except that I knew that it felt right. Well, it felt right because in my family of origin, though there was no active addict in the the immediate family, there were addicts all over the place in the extended family. Mm. So everybody learned the same patterns of behavior. Um, And so I ended up in relationships with addicts and alcoholics. I have a brother who's recovering um, Mm. and another brother who's very codependent. I'm not because I, I did different work than he did and different. We had different sets of issues, but when you look at it, 
there's a genetic component, but there's that that generational component is is the skills you learn or the rather the ones you don't learn. Right. Because you're in the environment where these are the coping mechanisms available to you. Mm. It just as an anecdote, that's so interesting. And uh, oh, only over the past few months have I sort, you know, I'm, I'm 38 and I've kind of aware of, you know, I've always been like not not interested in having kids. And all of a sudden something I'm just like, well, what would it be like? And and it has brought up immediately like, well, there are many things that are not going to get carried forward into that generation if this is going to happen. And it's, it's like lent a whole different perspective on my parents and the way that I was raised and, and those sorts of like, you know, abilities to stop certain cycles that have been perpetuated through families of origin. And, and, uh, and there, it's nice to be on this side of it where, where it's like, well, I'm going to do everything perfectly. But of course, there's like... We don't. I mean, I raised a child. You know, I, I didn't... Um, I My first husband was alcoholic. And so um, I, I thought I would have children, but I'd never been... I was never been like, I'm going to have kids, right? But, you know, I grew up in a family where that was expected. It was expected that at some point that I would get married and have kids. Um, and my first husband was alcoholic and I wouldn't bring a child into that environment. Mm. So I didn't, so I didn't have a child with him and we separated. I was 35 years old. Well, now I was 35 years old and I was recognizing that at 35 years old, mm. I had some miscarriages. I knew that my, there was something not quite right in my body, but I hadn't researched it because I wasn't going to have a kid, but I was like, now I'm 35 years old and my father's going, you're never going to have a child. And that's your, you know, your biggest legacy. And there was all this family pressure and my hormones kicked in like mad. Mm. And so there is this actual tape recording of me talking to this friend of mine when I'm 35 um, and saying, you know, we were talking about because I would record conversations and I still do it that I mine for things to write about because sometimes I say something and I wish I could remember it because I said it so well when I'm writing. Mm. So I would record conversations and transcribe them so I could pick out the little gems in my writing. So there is this conversation of me saying, and I, you know, no, I don't really, I don't think, you know, thinking about it, I don't really want to have kids. This is the lifestyle I want to have. This is where I'm heading. You know, I, I tried the conventional thing and still can't figure out why I did that. And now I'm going to go this direction. Um, and um, about four weeks after that, that conversation, I met a guy and my hormones were like, and I didn't know, I didn't believe how much your hormones could do to your brain, right? Mm. I didn't believe it at that point. Um, and I fell pregnant, as we call it here, um, <laughs> accidentally. And it was truly an accident. Within six weeks of meeting him, um, lost the baby, and then was on a mad quest to have a child wow. with the worst partner I could have chosen. <laughs> I mean, we were so incompatible. It just wasn't even true. <laughs> To the point where when I, when I, I, and I married him, God knows what, what possessed me. I had people saying to me, you know, you can have a baby with him without marrying him. But I, I was on like auto fucking pilot. There I, yeah. did. I went and I married him. Um, thankfully it was, we had agreed non-monogamy because I was never going to go into a monogamous relationship again, but I married the man. Um, and we had sex. I got pregnant and we had sex maybe three more times in the marriage. We were so incompatible. It was like, oh my goodness. Yeah, okay. Like, I, I don't know what I was doing. I've got an amazing 20 year old that came out of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And, I'm, and I adore him and I wouldn't change a thing. Yeah. But the power of the biology was incredible. The, 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 the blindness that it created mm. was amazing. Mm -hmm. And so I woke up in the middle of this, having had the baby going, what the fuck did I do? <laughs> like the baby's good, but we have nothing in common. Yeah. We're 12 years apart. I was 12 years older than he was. Okay. And I, <laughs> I was like, you know, he would, you know, he was going to be the stay at home dad, which was okay, fine. But like we, there was nothing to talk about. I mean, it was just, it was, yeah. it was insane. It was absolutely insane. <laughs> we were on completely different wavelengths with most things. There were a couple of things that we liked the same. So we could read a good book 
talk about it briefly, but, yeah. you know, for the most part, we had nothing in common. And I was just, and I, after that experience, like reflecting on it, I was like, whoa, okay, these are the sorts of things you need to pay attention before you make choices next time. Yeah, totally. Like, yeah. You got the young, virile uh, sea, yeah. uh, semen yeah. and produced what you had to produce from That's that exactly relationship. It. But, you know, but I'm, I'm, um, I'm a bright gal, right? <laughs> you know, and, and I've had people tell me, you have no idea how strong your hormones are. You know, you should know about this. You should understand that, that at this point in time, it's really important. And I yeah. now talk to women about that and say, seriously, I thought that was utter rubbish. And this is where I found myself. Woke up one day and went, oh my fucking God, what happened? <laughs> well, the species wants to continue. And so it's a yeah. really powerful drive. But I, you know, then had to look at my pattern again there and go, okay, wait a minute, hold on. Mm. What am I choosing for? Mm -hmm. You know, what's going on here? How much of this is unconscious? There's a willingness to work. And I, and I think, um, I think that's kind of step one. A lot of people are not really willing to look at their stuff and go, oh, yeah, that wasn't a conscious decision I made. And, you know, people justify why their decision was good because they don't want to seem like an idiot. I'll hold my hand up and go, yeah, I was an idiot. <laughs> As a clinical psychologist, have you been an ongoing, have had an ongoing therapist your whole life? Well, or, not my whole life, but, but like, um, I did, um, I had therapy um, 16, 17 years old and then stopped and then at 19, had a catastrophic trauma and I went into therapy at 19 and I was in therapy continuously till 27 mm. from 19 to 27. Um, and then I did the trauma therapy that I do with other people and I had no symptoms for the first time mm. in, you know, wow. eight years, you know, so it was pretty amazing to have no symptoms. So I took a break. Then I went back in and did some more therapy um, cause I wanted to look at other stuff. Um, I, go in and out and I do. Um, and when I learn new techniques, I often go and try and see what they're like as a client, if it's, if it's appropriate. Um, but I do personal development stuff all the time. I, not mm. to me, it's important to me to keep growing. So for me, that's, that's my mindset. Yeah. But it isn't always past looking. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. That's the thing that people don't realize, you know, you don't, I, you don't spend necessarily spend your whole life looking at your childhood and your past. I mean, I've looked at all stuff in my past. Then I look at stuff that I want in my future. I look at, you know, where I am in the present and yeah. what skills I need. So there are a lot of different approaches to becoming the best you that you can be. As a very smart person, why is it so hard to apply the things that you give to your clients? Or maybe it's not hard. Maybe this is the wrong question, but like, why can't you therapize? Why can't a one therapize themselves? Well, you can do some of that. You learn how to work with your way through certain kinds of issues. But when something's emotive, it's very hard to split off mm. and get a distance. That's what I was saying earlier. Like the therapist, if you think of the therapist as that person who holds that space that allows you to go to the scary place. Have you ever, and if you've ever tried to give yourself an injection or, or do something that's going to cause yourself pain, mm. if you've ever had to do that, you know how difficult it is to do that to yourself mm -hmm. because, you know, making yourself have pain deliberately is really very difficult if you're the one who's applying it, whereas you can hand it to somebody else and it's much easier to deal with. Mm -hmm. It's that ability to actually push yourself to that dark place, but then be able to work your way out of it. So if I'm holding space for you and you're in that dark place, there's a certain point at which I'm going to ask you a question mm -hmm. that's going to get you to look at something that's going to get you to start moving out from that dark place. Mm. But if you're trying to do it yourself, you have to be able to access that question at the right time. And that's really difficult. Yeah. Turn Me On Podcast will be back after this short break. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I, I just recently heard an analogy where it's like, you know, you think about like Olympic athletes, they're, they're, they are just unbelievable specimens. They're physically, they are capable of doing things that most normal people just, you know, do not have the ability to do. But in order for them to get to the point where they're competing in the Olympics, they need a coach. You know, it's, a, it's very rare to see an athlete just self-train themselves to the highest degree of athlete possible. You need a coach to be able to to uh, to get you to that point. And uh, and there's also a reason why, you know, all the best coaches in the world aren't just naturally just going to the, you know, compete at the at the Olympics at right. the gold medal status. They're there because they're they know they know the techniques and they know how to push you just a little bit further to get there. Um, so, you know, if we had the ability to just shrink ourselves, um, then we would there would be no need for a coach. But we all kind of need that 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 coach to be the best version of ourselves, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I do think, you know, I do think we can learn skills to minimize the amount that we yeah. need to get from others. Yeah. Um, and so people like me continue to do lots of different stuff because personal development is really important to me, Absolutely. but I'm not going because I have symptoms anymore. And I think that's the difference. Like, you know, you can actually get to the point where you no longer have symptoms, things that bother you. But will you choose to go because you want to look at different things? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Again, yes. becoming that better version, the the best possible version of yourself, of you. And again, to your point of like, you only have one thing that you really have the ability to change, which is you. Yeah. And we're we're constantly evolving and we're constantly at a, at a place where we can be better people, where we can be, you know, we can see the world through a better lens that just allows us to be more of a positive contribution to society. And I, to be, to be, you know, perfectly straight for me, if I didn't have that option, if I couldn't continue to work on myself and better myself, it's boring. Yeah, Life is boring. Yeah, yeah, totally, you know, yeah. I, I want to be learning until I yeah. drop off the earth. You know, yeah. I, I, I always want to be learning something and, um, and humans are infinitely fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amen to that. Even the fact that we could just talk about the analyzing our own all the analysis. Oh, I was going to ask, like, do you think we can cause harm? I, I always kind of thought of myself as a chronic overthinker and I really value personal development as well. It was a class I got to take grade 12 <laughs> and it's never ended. And, uh, but sometimes I catch myself and I'm like, am I just causing harm to yeah. my own brain by well, like overthinking is, is a, is a different problem. Okay. Um, and overthinking and I, Oh God, I spent, it's so funny how these things come up repeatedly at various periods of time. Like, it, over the past sort of six to eight weeks, so many of the people I'm dealing with overthinking is one of their big issues. Interesting. What people do when they overthink is they they turn something over and over again, but they're not actually doing anything systematic with it. Yeah. Or they try and project what ifs into the future. That's a classic overthinker thing is they'll sit there and they'll go, okay, there's this possible situation. Let's figure out, well, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if this happens? And they spend all their time projecting into the future and all their energy, mental energy, projecting into the future for things that may never come to be and end up being anxious and feeling negative things or just not gaining all the positives they could gain, one or the other or both, because they're not comfortable sitting here now. So that's the other skill, which is how to be present. 
mm-hmm. and how to know when it, when you do need to think things through when that's appropriate and when it's appropriate to go kept okay, done all I can now I just need to experience can't do anymore mm-hmm. well like what Jeremy was saying with these cyclical arguments we get into with mm-hmm. partners I I feel personally and I I'm sure I'm not alone that like, well, I've got, I've often, the most recent um, time I reached out to, to go to therapy was like, I, I am so exhausted of having the same argument with myself, Yeah, you know? And that I feel, I feel like is just, you know, like trying to look at my past or my, my desires for the future, for example, and like hypothesizing about why I'm piecing like backseat. What, what do they call that? Backseat psychology? Backseat driving. Back, exactly. Where it's just like, I don't, I'm not a professional, but well, I can come up with all kinds of things that seem perfectly rational. The for- thing is, is that it may seem rational, but if it's not correct, then you're just giving yourself wrong whys and wrong whys perturb you. They just have sent you further. Mm-hmm. So I, and the thing is, and why isn't the, isn't the be all and end all, right? A lot of times people go and they want to find why. I see this a lot with kink and fetish, right? Where people will have a desire that, they feel is unusual. Half the time they're wrong because it's like really common. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. They feel it's unusual and they're ashamed of their desire because they have this unusual desire. And what they want to do is figure out why they feel this way. Well, you could pay me thousands and thousands and I may never be able to help you figure out why because why is a complex, nuanced thing, right? It isn't, it doesn't come down to, oh, we're going to find the one incident. That's so rare. Occasionally it happens. You find the one thing, you know, and boom, that was why. But for the most part, why is really nuanced. And when you find out why, it doesn't change anything necessarily, Mm -hmm. right? Sometimes if there's some big thing that you weren't looking at underpinning a bunch of your behavior, when you realize it, yes, you'll be aha, but it's not always the why, right? And so I try and discourage people from going down that route. And I actually won't do that with a fetish or a kink. I refuse to take the client on because it's like conversion therapy. They're looking Mm. for me to help them find out why. So they don't feel this. They don't want this anymore. Mm. And what I know is, is that we are completely unsuccessful at getting people to not want things sexually. We're really bad at that. So it's like, I'll work with you on becoming comfortable with who you are but I won't work with you on trying to figure out why you're disordered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No point. That's this, nice uh, to hear. Dr. Lori Beth, this has been uh, so fascinating. And like, I feel like we really only just scratched the surface. There was so much uh, other stuff that I, I was kind of curious to dive into. We have at least five other qualifications of yours to, <laughs> that we, we'll have yeah. to bring you back. I mean, I mean, you know, we didn't even mention this, but uh, you, were, uh, you were the specialist relationship therapist guiding couples on uh, the television show Open House, uh, The Great Sex Experiment, which sounds utterly fascinating um and some some tv that i could most certainly see myself binging uh, really easily uh you're the host of a podcast the a to z of sex podcast which uh, i take it the people can, people can find that uh, wherever they apple, find podcasts. apple spotify yeah. stitcher, stitcher everywhere actually and, and then your books you've, you've got uh, three different books here chopping wood shaping metal and other erotic stories that sounds really fun i love that title uh dancing the edge to reclaim your reality essential life skills for gaslighting and trauma survivors and dancing the edge to surrender an erotic memoir of trauma and survival where can people uh, find your your books so easiest place um you can get them on amazon you can yep. get them on my website i know that amazon canada does carry them okay. um and um podcast you can find just about everywhere mm. at the moment you can't watch the television show there yet i'm hoping that they'll syndicate um it, it but it was on channel 4 uk and we've just filmed the second season so oh, we're yay. back for season two in april i'm sweet. really excited sweet yeah, well maybe, maybe we can uh, maybe we'll get you on before the launch of season two and we can dive into uh, what that show is all about because it, it really it really seems fascinating and, and yeah. uh, really neat show that i would love to uh, see make its way over here so I would love to talk about it. I mean, I, I love talking about um, non-monogamy and people and just people's relationship choices and how to figure out, you know, what style works for you. Mm-hmm. I'm always, I'm, I'm always up for talking about that. It, it was a lot of fun for me to do. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, I, it, it seems like uh, kind of like love Island, except, uh, <laughs> except like far more educational. Yes. You, you know, I mean, like far more beneficial. 
Yeah, nobody's being nobody's being voted off the show, which is great. Yeah, right, but yeah. it is. I mean, there's a lot of sex in this, like actual sex in this show, right? Cool. So um, I am doing the therapy. It, it is a cut down version of a retreat that I do, um, so that it's more visual for television. But I, so I'm working with the couple, figuring out you know what it is that they want to do, exploring what the pitfalls might be helping them set up a safe way to do it. And then they have access to um, residents who will help them enact or open up their relationship or enact their fantasies. Um, and then they try things. They come back to me the next day and we work on what's come up, <laughs> whether it's gone well, not gone Ooh, well, mm -hmm. they have the option to do something again. Um, and then I have one more time that I see them where we look at where they've gotten to and what they want to do, what the work they need to do is from here. Mm. Um, so it is, it's kind of, it's got a really big educational component, but it's also, there's a lot of sex. Very spicy. Um, yeah. It's very spicy and it's a bunch of attractive people. So it's, it's fun watching. <laughs> I'm always, I always look forward because, you know, I only know my bit of it. Yeah. I don't see the other parts of it until I actually watch the series. Yeah, totally. That's by fun. the time I'm done finishing filming my day, I, I'm not staying up to watch anything on the monitors. I, you know, <laughs> watching watching their sex is not a part of the therapy that you provide to them when they come back to your. No, own. <laughs> I, I don't need to have seen them have sex. In fact, I probably prefer not to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's always really interesting because people will be like. You know, I get in, I've been invited to various parties and things that are going on during this, the filming mm -hmm. of this. And I'm like, you know, I love you all. First of all, I am I am far older than most, than almost anybody there. I'm 59. So, you know, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not a young woman. I'm fine with that. You know, I'm still active and young at heart, but I'm far older than a lot of these people, <laughs> all of these people, in fact. But there's also this distance as a therapist mm. that I'm keeping, or even as a coach that I'm keeping because yeah. it makes me much more effective for no other reason. There are totally. other reasons, but yeah. just because it makes me more effective. So yeah. it's really funny having the conversation with some of the residents. It's like, oh, come on, we'd love you to come and hang out with us. And I'd like, I'd love to come and hang out with you. And we'll do the wrap <laughs> party. I'll come and have a drink with you. And then yeah. I'll say my goodnight. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, party I can I can as, as someone who casually project. casually works for film crews, I can mm. only imagine what it would be like to be like, "You're getting a job on this show." Yeah, totally. This is what your rap parties yeah. are going to look like. Yeah, the cameraman must love that one. <laughs> yeah. well, uh, yeah, um, I, 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 I haven't asked. They're brilliant. I love them to bits. Yeah, but I'm sure they really enjoy themselves. It's a it's, yeah. there's this whole really interesting aspect to it because there's we all treat it really seriously. Yeah. Like we're joking about it now, but we all treat it really seriously. And what people don't realize is that these people go through life-changing experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Completely changes their outlook. Um, and I mean, sometimes they're, you know, they, big pitfalls are shown up and sometimes, you know, amazing positive life changes, yeah. but it, it it's much more emotionally intense than people think. They just think it's a it's a bit of fun. Yeah. Fluff. Yeah. No, it's it's real stuff. Yeah. That's totally. really cool. Yeah. Well, then, uh, uh, when season two comes out, let's uh, get back together. We'll have another conversation. Sounds great. Uh, Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee, thank you so much for being on the show today. Really, really appreciate taking your time uh, uh, out of your schedule over there in London. Uh, this has been great. And, uh, and oh, right, Kent. That's right. Just that's outside. all right. You can say London. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm in commutable distance. <laughs> uh, thanks again, Lori. This has been fun. It's been my absolute pleasure. All right, there we have it, folks. Hope you enjoyed that conversation that we just had. And uh, thanks for listening to the podcast. If you want to support the podcast further, you can do that by leaving a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on the Spotify mobile app. And uh, if you want to uh, support the podcast even further than that, which you can. Wow. You can You're go to so kind and thoughtful and so generous. Thoughtful, so generous. Go to patreon.com slash turn me on uh, to become a patron and help us uh, keep this podcast afloat. Well, if you want to reach out to us, turn me on podcast at gmail.com is always open for all of your messages. That's the best way to get in touch. If you have a question for us, if you'd like to be a guest on the show, if you have a recommendation for a guest on the show, 
Or if you just want to send us a little love note, uh, email money transfer, uh, all of that. Sex toy. <laughs> you know, we're, we're our email inbox is open to you. That is it for this week. Until next week. Why don't you go touch yourself? Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.